Henry. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are recording, uh, we're, we are recording, but we're also reading Designs for the Pluriverse, uh, Radical Independence, Autonomy and the Making of Worlds. Uh, written by Arturo Escobar and published in 2017. Um, this, I think, is a pretty good book. Um, it's, it's got some issues, but it's got, it's a kind of, uh, I don't know, it feels like a piñata just full of interesting little ideas and things like that. Um, even though I'm not totally sure about the applicability or really what to take away from it. I also kind of found that like I was not exactly the audience for the book. It seems to be aimed at people in the design profession and anthropology, like in the academy, and there, was, there were bits that I just didn't exactly know what I was supposed to take away from, but maybe that's just me, so who knows. Yeah, interesting, because um, we're going to do this uh, recording in two sessions, and uh, I've only read the first half of the book, uh, whereas you've read the whole thing, so... I, I I can't really like speak to the sort of design applicability or like bring design to everyday life in the way that sort of uh, Escobar is advocating in the first part of the book. Um, but I can see how, yeah, it's trying to sort of approach design as this kind of pervasive, civilizational practice in contemporary society um, from a academic perspective, but then also trying to make this relevant for practicing designers and for, you know, activists who want to engage in design in um, everyday life. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's kind of got like a lot of intended audiences. Um, but maybe because of that broad intention, it can kind of miss here and there because of, uh, like, yeah, it's just, it's just not really clear exactly who its focus is. Mm hmm. I did find it to be very interesting overall, though. Um, I mean, like, you're right, there's there's a couple of different things going on here, right? Like, some of it is a, like, critical theory of design and, like, applying a kind of critical and political kind of lens to the practice of design. Um, some of it is kind of pitching design professionals on how their profession might still be relevant during the apocalypse and imploring the design profession, or like, well, partially imploring the design profession to come around to social responsibility and stuff like that, but also highlighting the ways that that's been ongoing, like the kind of recent trends. Actually, a lot of the book is an account of various trends in the academy and in design practice. Um, a lot of the book has this... And in activist, activist practices as well. Yeah, and that's the other part, right, is like speaking to activism and um, design design for transitions and that sort of stuff. Um, I guess pitching, I guess in a way it's pitching towards like why 
for activists, maybe like designers should not be considered class enemies necessarily. <laughs> like they can they can be relevant to to transition. You know, there's a lot of different audiences here. Yeah, I I think it's that, and it's also like grappling with this idea that design has become sort of a ubiquitous practice, so everyone is engaged in it to some degree. And then what are the what are the implications of that? even if you aren't a professional designer for like modern life, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause if it is true that like, it's sort of a ubiquitous way of living, then it means that everybody needs to be concerned with um, the critique of design because everyone's doing it, whether they know it or not. Yeah. I guess like in, in different parts of the book, it kind of, it's maybe speaking to the same thing from two different angles. Like it's like saying that, yeah, design has become ubiquitous and like um, it's more pervasive throughout our lives than we even realize. And like everyone is doing design. But then in, a, in another sentence, it will say, everyone should be permitted to do design. Like as in, it's kind of imploring the design profession to allow the thing that is also happening. Um, so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like do uh co-design do inclusive design do community centered design but also like there are ways in which everyone is doing design all the time in terms of like oh like maybe you're playing minecraft or maybe you are um like you know since the advent of like personal computers and you know, smartphones and everything. Uh, like maybe you are expected to create a time management package for yourself just to manage the amount of notifications and commitments and connections you have, right? Like just at the level of like, what apps am I going to use and how am I going to use them, right? Like that kind of... I guess you might call it like prosumer design. <laughs> like it's not professional. It's not purely consumer because each of these things is kind of incomplete in itself, but there is a assembly of uh, consumer technologies together to sort of meet the expectations of uh, contemporary uh, capitalist uh, work and and life uh yeah sort of just like what you need to survive in the contemporary social factory yeah which which kind of like brings us to one of the the sort of core there's a lot of there's a lot of cores in this book there's a lot of core um concerns but like it's very concerned <laughs> it's, uh, it's unsurprisingly it's plurversal it's plurversal yeah <laughs> but a, a lot of it is about ontology and the sort of ways of being and the ways of living. Um, and it kind of, it's hard to sum up exactly, but like it's, the pitch here is that our, our many underlying, our many, many crises at the moment are, is a general crisis of ways of knowing and being. And that design is relevant to that kind of crisis because the actual practice and doing of design and designing tools designs ways of being um 
and that we should be rethinking design from the vantage point of relationality and autonomy in order to address this crisis. Yeah, um, Escobar says in the introduction that uh, the book is anthropological Heideggerianism. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so essentially, it's that Heideggerian concern with ways of knowing being technologically based and shaping the totality of modern life in really detrimental ways. But then on top of that, it's informed by um, anthropology. So it's not just like doing deep ecology or doing that sort of like uh, like Heidegger studies approach of things. It's it's trying to be more um, expansive in looking outside of European understandings towards like this pluriverse of understandings to try to um, break out of that like uh, frame up that uh, Heidegger describes. Um, uh, yeah. So the, 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 you know, the question concerning technology, right? Like is maybe the answer isn't found in the West and maybe Heidegger was too Eurocentric to understand that there could be other ways of knowing that were outside of there that could be useful for escaping from this, like, uh, you know, um, all consuming, uh, technological, uh, cage. Yeah. Which I guess would be ironic for Heidegger, right? You know, <laughs> was his, that was kind of his bag, but uh, maybe he was <laughs> totally not placed to actually succeed in that endeavor. Um, this book is, um, it is, it is unapologetically a view from Latin America and from the Global South, which I found really refreshing. Um, and it's able to kind of frame, again, this, this, this crisis of being as the crisis of the imposition of a sort of singular world from Europe and from, from capital and modernity and all these kind of things, uh, capturing and flattening the entire world and kind of just deleting the kind of variety of life and all these vibrant traditions and these other perspectives that uh, might be less destructive and less, frankly, suicidal than, you know, Eurobrain has become. Um, yeah, so, like, the side of this that was Heidegger-inspired um, or Illich-inspired was, like, super familiar to me from my time, uh, you know, uh, doing philosophy of technology with An Andrew Feinberg, because, like, in the field of philosophy of technology, at the time I was studying it, everything outside of Feinberg's work was pretty much this kind of work where it was very like, um, granola, like I'm wearing my Birkenstocks in Oregon and like thinking about how like the modern world is just like so fucked up, man. And like, I just need to hippie out and, you know, enjoy the trees and, and, and my, my, 
my beautiful uh, rural life. Um, so like that sort of very um, civilization critique, like the whole world is fucked from a spiritual and cultural level um, as opposed to like, you know, the sort of like Marxist understanding of like materiality. Um, like, you know, technology is like a, a, a spiritual and cultural force as opposed to technology as uh, a productive force. Um, uh, that kind of understanding uh, was like everywhere in, in philosophy of technology when I was um, uh, studying it uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, but there's also the side of this, which is like about transitions thinking, which is very like familiar to me because of the work that I'm doing right now, uh, in, uh, in, uh, yeah, transitions and, um, you know, futuring and all of these kinds of like semi applied, semi policy, ecological academic, uh, kind of fields. Um, that are kind of like vaguely connected into sort of like dealing with the ecological crisis, right? Um, but the whole dimension of this that was like, um, as you said, unapologetically Latin American, I think was, uh, yeah, really new and brought a lot of different perspectives that I hadn't seen before because these kinds of like, yeah, like super West, Western, super Eurocentric disciplines about technology and design, um, I had a fair amount of familiar with familiarity with already. And, and that was the, that was the part that was like really like, you know, shaking it up. And then also just like, um, kind of like some sides of like Maturana and Varela that we weren't, we weren't super familiar with before, uh, coming through. Uh, not that, you know, they're not Latin American thinkers, but uh, uh, just stuff that they wrote that wasn't really covered in the things we looked at previously. Um, having that come up was really exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there is, I, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent on some of this stuff because like there, there, is, um, there is a fair bit of granola in here as well. And I think there's, there's a certain, there's a lack of... Uh, it's not materialist enough, and I know that's the thing that a lot of Marxists would say, right? Like, and I kind of feel like a caricature of myself saying that. Um, but it, it, which is is odd because I kind of, I sort of buy in some way the pitch that Euro brain is going to kill us all, and that yeah, it's a very, um, it's like a super plausible uh, argument uh, uh, because um, you know we're like like literally committing civilizational and global suicide at, at like turbo mode um, because, and, and we don't seem to be able to uh, like think our way out of it. And, and yet the kind of, uh, and, and yet the sort of, I guess, crunchy granola notion that like a spiritual transformation from the global South is what would save us doesn't, exactly land for me either you know um i think this has that kind of habit of being i think a little too generous to traditional cultures in their kind of like supposed like um you know uh thrive, thriving and pluralistic and joyful kind of like peace and love sort of ways you know it's like there, there's some parts of this that really feel like the kind of 
really low quality anthropology you would get in the middle of the last century, like the kind of Margaret Mead stuff. Where yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. these, these traditional people are basically aliens. They, they know no grief. You know, they when their children die, they simply smile and wander off into the meadows, this kind of stuff. And it's like, it's I, that's not what the author is saying here, but there's, there's a stink of that kind of stuff on it that makes me suspicious. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that sources that he is uh, drawing on um, in order to understand these... Uh, Latin American movements um, and indigenous movements are, he's very much like taking the sort of like um, aspirational projections that these movements are making about who they are and who they want to be at face value um, and, and, and saying like in a way that's very like reasonable because it's like this is what they're aspiring to, and this is something that is quite different from what you would get in the European uh, Western Academy. Um, and so, like, it makes more sense to listen to their aspirations than it does to get into the nitty-gritty of, like, okay, well, how does their society actually work from, like, a um, much closer ob observation in, in, in anthropological terms. Right. Like the project is interesting in itself, I guess, is what you could say. But um, it does it, 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 it does make me a little suspicious. Uh, the other thing about this that I think is um, difficult is uh, there's a lot of like sort of like collectivism and communitarianism in this book uh an anti-science uh like i wouldn't say, yeah it, is it anti-science i would say it's generally anti-science although it's not it's not exactly anti-science um uh a lot of this stuff either looks really bad this many years into the pandemic or um it feels like it's reacting against individualism in a way that does not take into account the problems of communitarianism. Um, like there's a lot of this where it's kind of like, you know, Oh, the individual is like so atomized and they're out of touch with the world. And like, they are, you know, incredibly destructive and, and it can only relate to it in these really like uh, toxic ways. And, you know, as opposed to the, the community, which is so vital, et cetera, et cetera. And like, you shouldn't think in an individualistic way. We, that's not what the way that people think people think as a community, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, yeah, but like sometimes it's really good to think as an individual. <laughs> like, I understand that he's saying that like the problem here is not that these dualities exist, but that they're very lopsided and overly privileged in one direction versus the other. But like, let's say that you are uh, one of these um, girls that the Republicans want to make into a child bride and the community around you is like on board with this project and they are going to uh, subject you to this uh, oppression. Um, if you have like 
a, a sort of like deep seated individual sense that this is wrong and that you need to get the hell out of there. Like that's a totally valid point of view and disagreeing with your community is a good thing there. Or if you're like, if you were raised in a cult or if you get sucked into a cult and then, you know, you, you kind of have like that, like feeling in your gut, like this is screwed up and I should leave. Like it's, it's right to actually listen to that and act on it. Um, and uh, that's a kind of individualistic action um, that is actually very positive. So I feel like there's areas there where it feels like in pushing back against um, the individualistic, uh, scientistic, rationalistic uh, point of view, uh, he may be uh, providing a lot of ammunition to some pretty scary and horrible people. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely got that same impression. Like, it's... it's yeah, it, it, it was... Some of this was kind of dizzying, because it's like... Yeah, you get that impression that, like, okay, the most generous possible read here, you know, would be that, like, oh, he, he just means the good parts of communitarianism or whatever. But then there's always this thing lurking there that you're like, god damn, the, some of this stuff as you just read it is really actually kind of ugly. And it, it actually reminds me a lot of, um... Oh, it was a good couple of years ago, I went to a, a, a talk or a seminar or whatever given by Silvia Federici. Um, and... Uh, you know, she was doing the usual thing of going on about, like, a lot a lot of stuff similar to this, actually, like, the need to, like, re-enchant the world, and, like, we're gonna get the the best kind of, like, ultra-feminist liberation by, you know, having deep ties to community and place and re-enchantment and yada yada and tradition and all this kind of stuff. And then in the question and answer section, somebody asked, like, well, that they relayed, like, their own life story, which was that they had grown up in the, like, really isolated islands off the coast of Scotland, like Orkney and Shetland. And that in their experience, like, those were communities that had very deep ties to place and deep traditions and great community bonds and all that kind of stuff. And it was a repressive hellscape. And that they had escaped from that environment to move to Edinburgh to, like, you know, live up the degenerate fucking Western modern <laughs> lifestyle or whatever. And so it was basically like she was just providing a counterpoint to the whole, the whole of Federici's kind of thesis. And like, you know, you seem to be saying that like this kind of re-enchantment and stuff is like the, the path to nice kind of lefty sort of liberation stuff. But in my experience, it's just not. And Federici just didn't have an answer for that at all. Like, just just totally didn't have any way of responding to that, that like, oh no, this, these kind of things can just be really reactionary and ugly. And in fact, in our experience, they often are. And like, there may actually be some big upsides to this whole modernity trick. Um, just didn't have much to say for it, for it in response. And I, I think I thought in that moment, it really undermined Federici's project in my mind. And there's a lot of that here too, right? Where I, I'm not totally sure that the author would have an answer that was satisfactory to that kind of question. And like, it's important for me as well, because like, I mean, I, I grew up in a community that was also had great traditions and local bonds and shit like that. And I had to fucking leave, you know, it would have killed, it would have killed me to fucking stay there. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's something 
positive and actually, if, if you're concerned with human flourishing, because like that's the kind of thing that's at the heart of this, right? That like the pitch is that modernity has uh, culled and destroyed a lot of the avenues for human flourishing and has turned a plural pluriverse into a monoverse. And that we could engage in a similar kind of um, elimination design to eliminate that kind of bad stuff and restore the, the pluriverse and the kind of plurality of human flourishings and that sort of stuff. And then I, I do have to wonder, with these traditional cultures, are they all that plural? You know, are they actually all that kind of into fostering the, you know, maximum emergence of, of human freedom or like, you know, flourishing and that sort of stuff? Because often they're not, you know, it's like, it, it, they're, they're often actually quite restrictive and repressive and frankly backward. You know, there's, there is something, there is something to be liked about the acid bath of modernity in, in that sense. And it's, it's something that's not accounted for here. Yeah, I I think there are sections of the book where he kind of like backpedals and dials it back a bit in ways that I'm like, okay, like I can get on board with that. Like I can see your point there. But there's also a lot of it where the overall thrust is exactly what you're describing. And to the point that, you know, I was reading some of his stuff about the pluriverse in the book and thinking to myself, you know, this really sounds a lot like that. Uh, it really sounds a lot like that. Um, I guess uh, like press release or statement that was leaked that uh, uh, Putin uh, and uh, the Russian government wanted to release upon their triumphant conquest of, of Ukraine where they were saying, like, you know, like, the mono world has been destroyed, like, we have struck a blow for the pluriverse, like, the one, wor uh, the one world order is over, and um, we're now in a world of multi-plurality and, like, very much, like, presenting themselves as the champions of um, plurality in the world uh be because like like shattering that that dominant um uh kind of like washington consensus order right yeah um, totally. yeah and i was like hmm <laughs> that's not great <laughs> yeah right that's that's the thing that leaves me wondering right because like the, i think the term they use it's like the um, it's that duganist thing of like multipolar world or whatever um it's it's multipolar, but it's not multipolar in the like realist uh, sense. It's multipolar also in a very like spiritual sense, right? Exactly right. And I guess like the the, the way this kind of stuff would play out is that like uh, we sort of have this. I think this is a thing this book does, and it's it's a, but it's a thing that a lot of similar things do, and so I'm kind of gloss over a lot of them. But like where we say. We have like a kind of quick cognitive shorthand, like return to, to, to tradition or something. And then we have the caveats at the end where, where we're like, we must restore tradition because yada, 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 yada. Where that, where that bit is just like a long explanation of like, well, hey, but when we say tradition, we don't actually really mean tradition. We mean this like more narrow definition of a communal flourishing that's egalitarian and equal and isn't oppressive and yada, yada, yada. And it's like all those qualifications that make the initial statement seem more acceptable. But then 
the, the, the first problem is nobody hears the yada yada part. They just hear the first part that's like return to tradition. And also... Yeah, the message of the book is kind of literally reject modernity, embrace tradition, right? <laughs> kind of, like... And that's the first problem is that the qualifications get dropped and like either nobody hears them or nobody gives a shit. And then the second order problem is that even if they did hear it and they and you know you were sincere in that you would find that of the number of people who say return to tradition you are one person who need, who means it in a liberatory way and you're up against 99 people who don't <laughs> that you're you're so this I, I do appreciate this kind of argument for the embracing of commun com communality i mean fuck it we're communists like it's it's there in the name right um, and I think there is an argument for the resurrection or the kind of like, at least permitting to flourish many traditions and kind of practices among many peoples. But this is, a, I, I feel among the current of return to tradition, this is a minority current by quite a bit, you know? And that's, that's the worrying part is that like, if I go out, if I go out the door and I walk around and I say, hey, who wants to return to, to tradition? I'm probably not going to draw a, you know, plural, pluriversal um, bunch of various different people who all want to coexist happily with each other. I'm going to draw skinheads, you know, with, with that kind of speech. Yes. And that's worrying. Yeah, well, and it's it's also like, the, it's a big, it's a big hole, like not a hole, but like, big question that i have in this in this like in reading this book throughout the whole thing is like constantly occurring in my head is like okay but what does this mean for europeans like what does this mean for white europeans or what does this mean for settlers like like in the case of the 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 europeans it's like yeah, like there's some parts of like, you know, European traditions, like being here and like, you know, hanging out and seeing stuff like they're fairly, fairly innocuous. Like, you know, you go get drunk and throw logs at each other or something like, you know, like these kinds of like rural sort of activities, um, like it's fine. Uh, but then like we have a pretty negative experience with the, <laughs> that like movement as a whole, yeah, um, either in the sense of like. Um, the fascist rejection of modernity or the um, appeal to things like pan, uh, pan Slavism or pan Germanism uh, as like, you know, uh, like this, this uh, power is going to be the champion of this life world and will protect it. Like have generally had like really bad consequences. Um, yeah. And then in the in the settler context, it's like, well, you know, you can't there's no like, you know, the settler communities are sort of like inherently deracinated and you kind of have two ways forward from this traditionalist point of view is either you embrace the incredibly destructive traditions that have spread up in the modern period um, among settler communities, like, you know, like, uh, like if I was in Alberta, right. Uh, and I were, I were like, oh yeah, I'm going to embrace like my Albertan culture. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a giant pickup truck and just like 
drive around destroying the countryside and uh, shooting things for fun, right? Like, that is not in any way, like, contributing to the objectives that Escobar is describing. Um, or the other thing is to try to, like, either sort of um, bandwagon with indigenous movements who have like a more legitimate claim to um, non-oppressive tradition because like they're literally oppressed communities and like the recovery of their traditions has been incredibly important to their capacity to like, first of all, survive. And then second of all, like, manage to constitute themselves like in a system five way as an entity capable of struggling against oppression. Right. When, when, you know, like the settlers, like we basically have been on this project of like, let's just completely erase their identity so that we can uh, annihilate them entirely. Um, but doing that, you can't actually make that your own identity. Right. Like you could be like, you know, I, I like recognize the validity of your identity. I think it's awesome that you have this identity and that it is like helping you fight against oppression and that it's bringing you together in a way that like settlers really struggle to do, right? Like that's really impressive. It's a thing I've seen happen in Canada. It's tons of people on the left have been involved in this, but it doesn't solve the problem of like, where do the settlers fit into this framework? Because you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to be like, I'm going to spend half the year I'm gonna I'm gonna spend one quarter of the year doing British stuff. I'm gonna spend a quarter of the year doing German stuff, and I'm gonna do half the year. I'm gonna be Dutch. So you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna have three traditions, and uh, I'm gonna celebrate them all equally by having a just like a pastiche identity that has nothing to do with my live context. There is there is a very short. I think it's basically a paragraph, almost at the very end of the conclusion, where he says that like. Um, for us, or, yeah, for, for Westerners, or whatever, for us degenerates, the project would be um, building something out of the ashes, you know? But a, a, a lot of the book is not that. A lot of it is like, oh, that, that like, yeah, a lot of it like left me wondering the same thing. It's like, what the hell, what the hell do I do about any of this? Like, if my, if my soul is lost, um, and there's like all the traditions we have here are like well f firstly there's no connection to fucking tradition like like I, I look at my window at like you know Scotland here and the traditions are like fucking deep fried Mars bars and drinking Buckfast under a bridge like this, there's nothing to connect there's not there's nothing there to connect to right like we're we're fully dissolved at this point so anything that we tried to like re reconstitute would I think almost universally have a negative and destructive expression and. I think it's, it's, I don't know, it's once you've passed through the iris, there may not be a way back through that kind of thing. And then, yeah, it's like, yeah, what, what do you do? What do you do after that point in this kind of framework? Well, yeah, and I, I think that um, it's also kind of, it, it's also kind of difficult to understand like that point of view of like, oh, like for the, for the Westerners, like you, like we need to like, uh, reconstitute something out of like the destruction um you know like after after uh everything's gone terribly wrong we have to like somehow pull things together it's like what do you think all of these indigenous communities have been doing like you, you like 
<laughs> like who has suffered more destruction and, and uprooting and chaos than them? <laughs> like <laughs> these things are not like like the adaptation to like utter like displacement and and just like catastrophe is like a hundred times more extreme on their end. So it's like very like like what like no like absolutely they've already been doing this that's that's why they have these proclamations about like you know constituting themselves as movements that are aspiring to a better way of of life that is like rooted in some kind of commonality that they can hold on to and i I suspect that i suspect that like the whole again it has this perspective from the global south and again it is extremely refreshing to get that however i sometimes one worry that the author might have misidentified something about this dynamic that like the reason why you find more you know i guess traditional cultures or whatever and a plur a plurality of them in the glo- in the global south is that they have been exposed to the acid bath later and that it's you know, you're looking at it through time dilation, right? Like this, it's like a redshift. It's like, you look at the you look at Westerners or whatever, or like people who just live in Britain or the US now, and you're seeing the aftermath of the acid bath. Um, when you look to people in Brazil or whatever, you're seeing that process still in, in progress. And like, but if you were to put your bet, uh, put a wager on the direction of travel, it's probably not generally towards the reconstitution of traditions. They're probably going to end up like us sooner or later. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a there's a couple of things there. Like the, the first thing is that like I don't know if it's really true that there is a time lag because, as he sort of points out in this book, the development of Europe and whiteness is like contemporaneous with the colonization and disruption of the rest of the world. And those things are like, it's part of one process that is producing differential outcomes, right? So like you don't get all of these characteristics of modernity without having imperialism, colonialism, uh, massive exploitation of resources in the periphery, huge environmental destruction, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I think that, you know, you know, he sort of talks about how, like, the category of modern is problematic because it's 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 identifying us as existing in a different temporality than them when the reality is that this is actually a co-evolving process. That and 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 the temporality never actually broke apart. It was. It was one temporality that built different worlds. Um, like, yeah. Uh, so that I think is 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 part of um, the issue here. Uh, and then the other one is that I guess he's trying he's trying to say like you know if you look at it from like a development perspective or a modernism perspective, it does seem that like we will all go through the acid bath, but that's not really desirable. And also if we do that, we're all dead. Right. Like, so it's, 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 it's not that it's like impossible, but if you, if you follow the logic of developmentalism to its conclusion, given what we know about like our material sort of metabolism with nature, 
that is death. We're we're all going to die. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think that there's yeah. I, I I guess it's just a thing of like simultaneously being like okay, we don't want to um, engage in that kind of like median uh, like I will use these people as my uh, as my uh, straw man to argue against some other people in the academy I don't like. Uh, methodology uh, but then also not just like you know uh, completely give up on uh, any kind of uh, plurality coming out of those communities because like we recognize that yeah they actually are evolving societies and cultures and in 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 a way that is intimately tied to the way that we exist as well mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think with the the temp, the, you're you're quite right that the, the the temporality thing is an illusion. But I I guess what I meant more was that like from the perspective of like what do we do as people not of the global south is more like that the the experience of being deeply saturated with Euro brain it like leaves you in a very different ontological state than the people in the global south who can at least retain a kind of resistance to the imposition of that. Yes. That they, they, they have a tradition, or they, they have whatever traditions they have that they can contrast with the imposition of the acid bath, whereas we're soaked in it, and all that kind of shit is gone. And what do, what, like, what do you do, aside from synthesize something totally nuts, you know, out the back of it? Um, yeah, like literally, like, ri- literally like new age thinking, right? That basically, like, you know, I mean, and like, look where that went. But like, this is this is kind of, of course, what the author is pointing like that like, it's a crisis of ontology, and that it's it's a crisis of like ways of being and ways of thinking about the way we are. That like the ontology that we carry around with us informs it's it's such a bedrock and a baseline for further action that uh, it it matters extremely, right? Like, and that it is, that this is related to design, right? Like we, in designing tools and situations, we set up our ways of being, which then influence our ways of thought, which influence our ways of building further things and so on and so forth. So that like, and this is where like throughout the book, he's kind of contrasting the modernist, dualist, rationalist ontology versus the kind of pluriversal uh, connectivist, like relational ontology and that like if you if you approach the world like your brain where you have an ontology which presumes uh you know individual hermetic uh you know individuals first who then secondarily relate to each other and form networks whatever and these these beings are primarily separated from nature and then they come into contact with nature afterwards that informs a whole way of being and a way of thinking about being and a way of rationalizing our way of being, our way of like talking to each other about our way of being. That is totally different from if you had a, like like the various indigenous peoples and scholars that he quotes here, a way of thinking that is primarily about the like network of relations in, in nature and about relations in communities then producing personalities afterwards and that kind of connective way of being. So that, that's, I think that there's, there's some, there's a lot to that. I think that's, that's something I, I definitely agree with, but it's like, it's, it's not evident really from the book, like what you're supposed to do about it if you're stuck in your brain. Um, and it's also not evident entirely that 
the indigenous peoples necessarily have it all sorted out, you know? That, like, they, that they don't have their own kind of repressions and perversities that would not need, need to be shaken out uh, as well. Right, because it's like, um, it's just it's just not considered here in any way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and also, like, there is a way in which working from this binary of, like, the one Western culture versus the many other cultures makes it very difficult to examine in any kind of useful way, right? Because it's like... It's kind of erasing the differences in the West, and then um, homogenize, or and then like maybe either exaggerating or kind of also erasing the differences on the other side of the binary everywhere else. Definitely right. Yeah, and like that's that's super important because like um, another sort of way I struggled with this is that like um, I mean even just in the introduction he's pulling together. Uh, Ivan Illich, he's pulling together a bunch of stuff. He's pulling together, um, like, Latin American feminist thought, and it's all about the, the patriarchy and capital and Cartesianism and all these kinds of things, right? Like that, and the, the one-world system. They all get kind of globbed together. And it's, it's reminiscent of the problem that you get in feminism sometimes, where... Uh, we all kind of know what the patriarchy is as, like, a cognitive shorthand. But if you glob everything under the patriarchy, you start to get these kind of, like, it erases too much in many ways. And it, like, you can end up with rather perverse kinds of feminisms that fall out of it. Like, um, I mean, because it's a hot, hot topic right now, but the kind of trans-exclusionary stuff comes out of that thing of, like, well, the patriarchy is bad, all men are patriarchs, and it's impossible for women to be bad, therefore, you know, quote, men should be excluded from women's sports and all this kind of shit, right? And it's, it, it, it's kind of, you can see how erasing too much leads you to this kind of spiral of thought. Um, I mean, also, they're just shitheads anyway, so that probably is what led them to that spiral of thought, but, you know, there's... And I guess the same thing happens with Marxists, where everything gets fucking glumped under capital, right? Or whatever. Um, same with, like, the North-South divide. Everything gets lumped under just the North. Um, and it, 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 erase, it, it definitely does erase the fact that, like... It, this, it, it's, again, quite hard to disagree with, because there really is something to this notion of, like, the singular world as a sort of all-devouring... Uh, an all-devouring serpent god that wants to just erase all life from the planet, right? Like, that's that, that definitely feels like a thing. But also, there's plenty of fragmentary, overlapping patchwork worlds inside the the West, you know? There's there's more than enough fragmentation to, like, fill, fill an infinite number of libraries with, uh, just, like, documenting it all. And so, you end up in a similar problem where... There's some really perverse feminisms that fall out of just gabber, jabbering about the patriarchy all the time, and I think there's a certain there's a rhyming perversity at work as well, or it's it's a it's a danger that's that's here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's a danger. Um, well, you, like you see it kind of like in uh, you know sort of like that really knee jerk anti imperialist uh, politics, right? Or or it's just like well. You know, it's it's against the the it's against empire, so 
it's must be right you know um yeah uh for sure just just leafing through the introduction here there's one bit that stood out me stood out me as um as actually quite a quite a nice framing was um I, it sounds like we're super critical what we are actually but um there's a lot of good stuff in here too um it's just we we need to talk about the bad stuff too um but the, the, one of the good things that stood out to me is that um these like defuturing effects of the of the one world capital system versus the necessity of recovering futures and future future ing as a as a verb as an action to counteract because like yeah like capital does this thing where it just like calls and erases um potentialities and just like smashes and flattens the space of possible things that could happen um and it it de it defutures it robs us of our future it's um it's a kind of it's a double whammy it it fucks you up now but it like sets you up to be fucked up tomorrow again um and yeah i mean that's that's like entirely what like the research group i'm involved in at work is is working on um in terms of, of futuring um and 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 plurality of futures and and kind of rescuing some kind of um like room for maneuver within that imaginary of the future right uh, as opposed to just well it's just going to be the same thing forever um uh, and no matter what evidence there is that this isn't going to work, it is still the case. Um, so, uh, yeah, really important um, and and definitely needs to be informed by uh, a lot of different perspectives um, because um, it's it, like even just like at a basic level of necessity, it's it's incredibly difficult to do um because there's just so much inertia you're fighting against right <laughs> you need every resource you possibly can to have a different imaginary um yeah yeah and i i, I like um I, I i get that kind of stuff a lot where it's like um i mean we, we make a lot of hay of like saying that like another world is possible and like you know the the, the history is contingent right like it's not a, a deterministic system and stuff but then the just the the state of things right now feels super fucking deterministic doesn't it right like where it just feels like the the possibility space has been called to almost zero and it's like on the one hand you believe that like things can change and be like that human action can modify the future but also it sometimes feels like it's not quite the case um that's dizzying and weird to to live out you know yeah 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 you feel like you're constantly struggling against the weight of uh or just yeah the inertia of this of this whole project that we're caught up in um uh but yeah i guess like um i think um we can look into some of these uh chapters maybe just to have a sort of a brief discussion about the the particularities of them right um yeah so um the first chapter um out of the studio and into the flow of socio-natural life uh so this is specifically about design right yeah it's about cultural trends in design practice so it's an account of all these little 
threads that have been developing in the practice of design that like gesture in the direction of this um of this this thing yeah and we sort of see like uh you know this problem of um expert knowledge and expert institutions seizing control over the initiative to change the world right um that that because they have expertise they can make things happen and you're supposed to defer to that right um so uh there's this line here uh in short with the development of expert knowledge and modern institutions social norms were sundered from the life world and defined heteronymously through expert driven processes they were no longer generated by communities from within uh, which would be called autonomy, nor through open political processes at the local level, which would be called autonomy. Um, so my thought here was just like, yeah, I mean, this is like what you see with COVID measures, right? That like experts are defining social norms. Well, at least they were until recently. Um, uh, and then communities um, may agree with them or disagree with them, but regardless of that, they're not really autonomous or autonomous, right? Like they're not coming up with their own solutions to these things because the solutions are being decided by public health experts. Um, yes, yeah. Um, and like it's... It, it's interesting that this is all tied to the concept of design because I think I think it's quite right that like you can look at the like the the last century and like the the sort of emergence of this kind of modernity as a an enormous scale deliberate design project to to remake the world and to capture as much of it as possible in these these expert systems. Yeah, I I think that's yeah I think whenever you sort of go from um, whenever you go from uh, science as a curiosity to science as a um, world-changing project, then you're already starting to engage in design, right? Absolutely. And he even um, pulls in like uh, industrial design, uh, which I guess is is definitely related to the kind of scientific stuff. But like, as a that the the project of the Bauhaus and various kind of industrial design stuff in the 20th century was explicitly better living through design. It was ontological design. <laughs> like, it's right there, you know, it's it's staring you in the face. But I, I just found the framing here was really refreshing and, like, actually drawing that out. Um, and then, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think, like, you know, um, it was very explicitly the case that, like, those design firms were trying to build a new socialist world through design um, and like making quote unquote machines for a living. Right. Um, and yeah, like this, this was definitely a world transforming project that they were engaged in. Um, yeah. And there's a line here then that like it's, the problem is not one of a lack of knowledge, but of the conditions of existence. And then following on from it, it's like, what world do we want to build? What kinds of futures do we want? Pe do people really want? Um, and yeah, that's, it's, 
I think this this reminds me of the COVID stuff as well, because like it like so much of that is framed as well, so much of everything in modern culture is framed as a problem of knowledge of like we just we just don't know we we don't know enough about this that or the other, and that's never really been the point. It's like again it, there's the split between epistemology and ontology. Epistemology being about knowledge. Um, and how you know things, ontology being about what is and how you be, um, that really this is always a struggle about the conditions of existence, not... And so, I mean, the same thing goes for the COVID stuff, right? Like, it's... It, the expert discourse stuff is always kind of framed as being about knowing and about data and, like, decision-making based on knowing. But the real thing that's at stake and the real thing that inspires reaction from people is the ways of being and the ways of living in the world. And so when you have the sort of like, just follow the science people versus the, you know, fuck the mask mandates people, they're, they're not even speaking the same language in that regard. One of them's talking about knowing and, and like knowing that the experts have decided based on knowing or whatever. And then the others are just like, I don't fucking want to live that way, <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like a lot of the pro mandate stuff was it was like, you know, believe the science that was a major part of it and a lot of the sort of like methodology or like the 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 methods that that group appealed to were about knowing, right? Like how much COVID is out there? What are the effects of it? What is the best way to cope with it? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the, the background of it was, um, well, we just like, we don't want to see people die. Right. That was the normative background to that. Um, and, so it, I don't know, it's almost like that argument wasn't strong enough. And so it had to result to scientific discussions. Like, I mean, like, you know, the, the sort of like claiming that we have the best way to deal with this is a way, it, it, it is a claim to expert knowledge. It's a claim that gives you power, Right. But there also was like a sort of motivation there that was about, at the very least, risk management, which I think is what people found so infuriating, was that like you're living your life according to like risk management, and that's a horrible way to live. Um, but there was also a very like humanitarian claim behind that. Um, which is like, if we don't do this, a lot of people are going to die and it's going to be the most vulnerable people. Um, so again, I feel like it's a thing where it's like, these are, it's not purely what he's describing here, but the, the process he's describing is important to the way it played out. Right. Well, I think there's also, um, it's, uh, it's again, just riffing in something that he is, he's also describing elsewhere. I mean, this book has that kind of holographic quality that uh, Marx and Nature did, where it's like every paragraph contains the entire book somehow. Um, so it's, it's hard to actually talk about locality of, of arguments. But um, 
the, the, the modern, the modernist kind of ontology and like way of being is often also highly insensitive to the kind of conditions it sets up after like so you do have mm. the, the humanist motivation okay and like that's this good stuff like trying to save people trying to not not have civilization collapse because of an illness that's all wonderful then you have the expert knowledge and discourse and the sort of argument from knowledge and the kind of justification via knowledge but then and i think that i mean I, i'm not against mandates like i think this stuff has largely worked as best as it could have been expected to even though it's also been a catastrophe but like it's preferable to having you know the morgues be totally overflowing permanently and like you look out the window and realize you haven't seen the bins be collected in three weeks you know because everyone's dead that's it's preferable to that outcome but then you still get this kind of thing where the those those interventions based on this kind of knowledge and understanding then set up living conditions that are just intolerable and and the system doesn't seem to be sensitive to that fact so one one example from recently is that like in china at least they have pretty severe lockdowns right now and they've got things like cancer patients are not being treated because they're hospitalizing everyone who has even the mildest case of covid like the sniffles and that's that's a kind of objectively insane outcome even though it was motivated by a humanitarian concern and had this expert discourse and like justification for it, the conditions of living, the the like way of being that it generates, is kind of bizarre and like not viable in the long run. Um, so that's a kind of perversity that's characteristic of modern thought, right? Like that, it's kind of concerned with these like knowledge justifications and the justification of actually living is at best a secondary concern or is often not really a concern at all yeah it's it's very much that like uh that like non-real so-called non-relational uh way of thinking that uh he describes right that like like i can think through you know i can identify this virus that is highly lethal and highly uh, infectious and I can assess the danger that it poses to people. And based on that, I can make, um, plans about how to deal with it. But my consideration is kind of like limited to people in the abstract methods in the abstract and the virus in the abstract right so is that like like and then like you make a policy to change the situation and then follow the plan right and so it's like very like uh monodirectional right like the, the deliberating subject, the experts make a deliberation, they come up with a plan, and then they act upon it. And it's kind like it's kind of um, like the logic is if we if we stick to this rational plan as best as we possibly can, regardless of the other consequences, then, it will produce the best outcome because we have studied the matter. We have studied the virus and its effects on public health um, as rationally as possible. Mm -hmm. 
it's highly Cartesian, <laughs> like extremely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas the the author here would argue for, and I mean, there's a section titled this, design as a situated and interactive practice, so that the the better way to actually handle all this is for the design agents to be embedded in the system and to be reactive with these like deep feedback loops, um, which is not what we have, right? Like we, we have the Cartesian expert like floating in the cloud solution. We don't have this deep embeddedness. I mean, we don't even really have basic feedback of like, hey, your plan didn't fucking work. Maybe stop doing it. Like even that basic feedback loop is broken. I mean, we kind of do in the sense that like um, the politicians sort of get like extremely noisy algodonic signals and then just like kind of like wildly gesture at different policy outcomes um, according to whichever way the wind is blowing um, within the repertoire that can be conceived of by the experts, right? So there's there's like a feedback channel, but it's like very, um, it, 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 it's a very uh, low fidelity channel that is just like you're taking, you're taking like an enormous amount of variety and then attenuating it down to just like a super noisy, super high amplitude uh, channel that is just like blasting the uh public health system um so yeah that's that's definitely uh a part of it and then the other thing is that like yeah it's like people yeah i don't know like in the absence of yeah it's kind of weird because it's like when the mandates are off people just kind of like assume that because the mandate isn't there then the experts have decided that there aren't any problems anymore so you just go and do whatever the fuck you want right like it's it's like it's not it's not that there are the experts who know everything on one side and then the hoi polloi who are just like you know utterly incapable of self-preservation it's that like even when the experts say the mandates are off, that's a kind of expert judgment and is taken as an, an expert judgment, like at having authority, right? Like that, oh, okay, everything's over now. Okay, so it's over. So that, that means we don't need to ever talk about this ever again because the experts decide it's over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like in, in both modes there, like that, both, both the one and the zero of that one bit signal, they're both like non-involvement, right? Like that, people in general are not involved in any kind of process of deliberation or co-design of the situation. It's just like, and I think at some point in this book, he just kind of makes the point that like, we are, we are absolutely saturated in expert discourse. Cause like everything we fucking do is like, if you're going to buy a new stereo or whatever, you go look up the experts like opinion on what the best stereo is. You check the news every day to see what the expert opinion on COVID is. You, go look up the the one bit signal that says are the lockdowns on or off today the the expert kind of signal and like everything we do and think about it kind of goes via this kind of expert discourse but we're not involved in it at all like it's it's just a kind of ambient sort of feature of the world um well and it's also just like inherent to the nature of being an expert that if like so you know ostensibly i am an expert in something right like i'm an academic at 
studying highly specialized knowledge in a in a university but just because you're an expert in something doesn't mean like you belong to this like united body that is like the experts it's like a totally diffuse patchy kind of yeah it, it, it's a pluriverse like you know it's it's like it's like Neurath's idea of the unity of science right that like like the unity of science doesn't mean everybody is like on the same page. It means you have like these kind of like pluriverse of expertise that sort of like interfere and collide with each other. But like nobody knows everything. Nobody is the expert. Totally. Have you ever heard of the uh, Gell-Mann amnesia effect? No. So is this this physicist uh, Murray Gell-Mann, and I, I think this is actually like apocryphal. It's not actually really anything he said, but it's attributed to him. Where he uh, he's reading the newspaper and like there's an article about something about physics, and it's just like hopelessly wrong and like you know dumbed down and like people, they're getting the basic facts wrong. And he just like chuckles to himself and goes, "Ah, fucking dipshits." Then turns to the next next page, and it's an article about Syria. Uh, but he like doesn't then immediately question that they'd get that totally wrong either. You know. <laughs> Um, that if, which is a strange one because you would, there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction there. It's like, well, of course they wouldn't get Syria wrong, but they would get physics. And it's like, well, wah, wah, wah. In <laughs> interrogate that for a moment, you know, like it, it, it's, yeah, these, these expertise don't transfer and like, but I guess everything's presented to us as if it comes from a big, uh, a big like multi-faced head called the experts um yeah it's like the experts are always another country right like they're always external to whoever you are even if you are an expert so yeah so that's also kind of part of this like non-communal uh dimension of this right where like even if you're in that so-called community it's not actually a community it's it's a a sort of like it's like a heap a heap of people that does not like become a community <laughs> it's 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 seria seriality in the kind of sartre sense you know yeah 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 that's right <laughs> it's like you're all standing in the queue for the bus but that's not that's not a community that's just a collection it's just a list of of similar objects it's not like a it's not really a collection of any kind um um, yeah, so to continue on with this uh, this design stuff, um, I think the the main point here is that like even though like you know in that like 1920s 1930s era like there was a lot of design that was involved in sort of social transformation, it wasn't like design as a practice didn't really have this like ubiquity right like it wasn't. It wasn't like something that you went to, you would commonly go and study. Uh, it wasn't something that people were talking about all the time. It was something that was like really quite marginal in terms of the overall society. Um, uh, even though expertise was already something that was becoming more and more uh, uh, common. And then this starts to shift over time um, to design becoming more and more ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And like the the sort of conceptualization of it as design becomes more ubiquitous because like I think throughout the book, especially with like um, when referring to like indigenous cultures and stuff, there's like there's stuff that like strikes you as definitely a kind of social design, but it's not. They don't conceptualize it in that way for themselves. 
Like, um, when you look at uh, ancient cultures that had, like, conspicuously lots of little cultural, like, rituals that would prevent accumulation of resources and would prevent the emergence of dominance hierarchies. Like, that shit's really conspicuous as, like, there has to have been a design process of some kind where these people collectively decided, hey, every every autumn we're just going to set all the shit on fire to prevent it from accumulating and prevent any, like, tyrants from emerging. But you would they would probably not conceptualize it as design, even though it kind of clearly is. And there's that kind of, like, imminent, lived direct kind of design of our own lives that happens that then gets formalized and becomes more of a thing where like, oh, look at that thing. It's design. You look, look at that fucking thing we've been doing all along. That's design too, you know? Yes, yes, yes. Right. It's, it's like it, uh, it, the label and the practice sort of like, uh, like Katamari style just like accumulates practices onto itself. It becomes larger and larger. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I you know he kind of this is like then he starts to sort of like get into this like trend stuff that you were describing like cultural trends in design like after doing the doing the history he's sort of like well you know like this is what's going on in architecture this is what's going on in city like urban design like etc cetera, etc cetera. um I guess we can just kind of like I don't know, cherry pick some things that were interesting here because it's kind of what he's doing anyway. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think like one thing that was like ridiculous to me was like, he was like, um, uh, <laughs> he's talking about architects and he says, uh, the lack of a deliberate discussion of capitalism and globalization does not mean a lack of awareness of their importance, as much as indicate that architectural discourse gets at them in other ways. It's like, no, that's, that's, no, no, it's completely wrong. Uh, like, this is totally ridiculous, because, like, you know, if you go back to that sort of, like, Bauhaus era, architects were talking about capitalism all the time. Like, the, the reason they don't talk about capitalism and globalization is because they work for capitalist patrons <laughs> like they, they're making bank that's why they're not talking about it okay <laughs> that's absolutely it right and like that kind of, that kind of stuff is all over this and it's like it it just it has that kind of classic anthropology vibe that kind of problem where it can say the word capitalism but it can't really mean it you know um in that um I don't know. It's like this is this is a it's a problem I have with a lot of like general anthropology kind of writing is that like it's it's able to like say capitalism and patriarchy or whatever next to each other, but is sort of unable to actually follow the conclusions through and like and examine the material like implications of that because like yeah. It, it, it's like people who report about the art world but like are exceptionally naive about the way it works. Like that, have, that like don't actually like they don't understand like the ways in which like the art world is driven by rich people who just need a place to park their money and like patronage coming out of that and like markets coming out of that. Like it is it is not the thing you think it is or what you were taught when you were in school. Right. Like there's a whole like material background to the art world 
that I'm not saying that like people don't artists don't talk about this or that, that they don't want to talk about this. I'm just saying that there's a lot of people who write about the art world who are exceptionally blind to the, mm. to the reality of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'd be like, Oh, well, you know, like, you know, popular culture, that's all just money driven. It's like, well, what do you think about high art? It's like <laughs> totally money driven as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was just kind of like a like what the fuck sort of moment of, of like are you serious about this? Um, another thing that really stood out to me in this uh, um, chapter was like you know kind of like focusing on what he calls like metrofitting um, of like like you know redesigning urban spaces to make them sustainable, livable better for humans and the nature around us um but like not like which i agree with like this is really important and you hardly ever really see it happen like it's you know you, you like for example like i'm in the netherlands and a lot of this country like the urban spaces were completely redesigned in like you know the 80s 90s and stuff uh like rejecting that kind of like car-centered vision of urban design and making these new urban spaces that were like way more livable um and that kind of like urban redesign is really inspiring it's incredible all that kind of stuff is great but i think like that focus on the urban is like a real mistake because like if you go back to you know marx um talking about like the division between town and country um that's a thing that like urban design quote unquote doesn't really address um and unsurprisingly like a vast number of the political problems that we have in the world today break down on town versus country divides um but if your focus is here is the the cities and this is what i'm interested in studying and this i'm going to make these better and then i'm just going to ignore the rest of the world around them um you're never really going to get at those root problems because the division of town and country isn't actually something that you're seeing as a problem mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's um that's a major it's a major kind of blind spot and like uh, like it, it, it leaves you kind of it, it, it left me kind of wondering like how much of the um, the problem arises from the book being aimed at like anthropologists and the design profession and such like pe people who either you, you know spend a lot of time in cities or spend their time jetting between cities to go to conferences and stuff like there's there's a sort of narrowness to the consideration here that like I it, it just I don't know I don't know how to put it, it like it just kind of the vibes here feel very much like the audience it's aimed at, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's partially down to sort of like the trend cherry picking that is in this, this, um, this, uh, chapter where it's like, you know, he'll, he says like later on, like, Oh, like cities have a destructive metabolic nature and this is part of the modernist city. And it's like, yeah, totally. But like, doesn't really get into it any further than that. So it's kind of like, well, well, if you just like look at trends in different existing design disciplines, then you're not really like critiquing the 
limits of those disciplines is because you're just sort of like accepting them and then moving on to another development in the design world, which is like you say, um, just sort of like catching everybody up on the latest news for designers. Yeah. Um, the next section after that is quite interesting where it gets into, um, uh, uh, design and the rise of the digital. Um, some points here about like the kind of hangover from the the nineties, like this kind of like cyber banality that we're left with. It's actually stuff actually kind of sucks a fair bit, doesn't it? Um, and this is where he starts bringing in uh, Maturan and Varea, right? Like with the um, like cognition as embodied, embedded, inactive, and extended. And that, like, this is becoming a bit more of a thing, right, in that kind of field of considering the digital, that, like, um, or even just considering the the kind of geopolitical and material substrate of cyberspace, like the, the he's bringing in Benjamin Bratton's notion of the stack, this, like, mega structure that is below this kind of, like, shiny facade of, like, HTML and fucking JavaScript or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, this is this stuff is all, like, really important to sort of like moving towards that like non-modern point of view that like we saw in Pickering or that is often like brought up in this book. Um, uh, like I feel like, you know, moving towards biology as a paradigm as opposed to like signals processing or physics uh, is an important way in which like the style of thought that we have now has changed since the nineties, um, like in a very big way. Um, like what is seen as valid, like, you know, like moving from like the linguistic turn of the mid 20th century to where we are now with like this ontological turn, biology as like a paradigm is like super important to that. And, and the way that it, it was used to rethink computing. Yeah. Um, there's also a fun section on speculative design, um, which kind of riffs on like the emergence of like, so feminist and like disability um, studies and like scholars kind of like doing this kind of like, I guess like speculation about like, well, yeah, it's in, it's in the title, speculative design, right? Like you're kind of using this kind of imaginative futuring sort of thing to imagine what could be different and then hoping that that informs how things develop. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if I think about, you know, this is something I do sometimes, like I just try to think about like, okay, what would it, like if I take in my head the social model of disability, right? Uh, where, you know, disabilities are not inherent to people, they're um, sort of like effects of social sorting, of who is valid versus who is not, right? Like people are rendered disabled by their environments because like priorities are made in in, in design decisions um, and and economic decisions. So if I if I if I take that model as like valid, and then I I think about like well, what would it take for me to like feel like I wasn't disabled? That I can kind of imagine a future out of that, right? And then so that's basically speculative design. Um, yeah. Um, another example I can think of is like, um, I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to dig up the exact reference, but it was something along the lines of a, uh, like the construction of some sort of housing block or whatever. Um, and the, the, diff the thing that was different about this is that like the actual people, it was for public housing and the people who would, 
uh, actually occupy it. Uh, almost all, you know, almost universally, um, single mothers were consulted on like the design of it, and it's like, oh yeah, like put all the kitchens facing the back, like the the central courtyard, so we can watch, so we can watch the kids play, you know, while we're washing up and that kind of shit. Which apparently had never occurred to the architects before that because that would be fucking ridiculous, you know? But like obvious kind of stuff like is like, and it's like, that's, it's a fairly light kind of speculation, but like, hey, what if I could like both keep an eye on my kid and actually like take care of the house, whatever, is one of those lightweight speculations that leads to a good outcome. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like often, like almost always the case that uh, social housing design has nothing to do with the occupants of the social housing. Um, right. So, um, uh, then we move on to talking about, uh, ecological design a little bit. Um, so this is basically just like, um, the idea of thinking from ecological principles in doing design work. Um, so the, the, you know, mentions that like this, uh, book by, uh, Ian McHarg, uh, is uh, Design with Nature, published in 1969, was sort of like the founding work of that, but it like it took decades later for it to like really take off. Um, and I mean, arguably still is like a very niche thing, right? Like, <laughs> like you, you don't see a lot of this in, 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 in sort of like your typical buildings that you see constructed or around you. Um, uh, but yeah, it's becoming more of a trend, right? Um, uh, and then we have uh, living systems theory. Um, uh, so this is um, the idea of uh, seeding all socio-natural systems with diversity and creating resilience through intelligent webs, building on the self-organizing potential of natural and social systems, um, which is like, you know, when he gets into this kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Of course, like that's that's what we want to see in the world. Of, of course it is. Yeah. Like, um, you know, we have an incredible dearth of of these 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 kinds of systems in the world. And 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 we absolutely desperately need them. And I don't think it's even a matter of, of, of serious controversy anymore. It's just a matter of, oh, well, like, you know, maybe in your like fantasy world like we could deal with these pressing ecological issues but yeah you're 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 some kind of dreamer kyle like it's your fantasy world in which not everyone dies yeah like <laughs> yeah it's like oh somebody doesn't want us all to die how special are you <laughs> um uh, <laughs> so yeah i mean th this this sort of gets into like um like his critique of economics that he makes like later in the book which i think is actually like uh, well, it's, it's not really his, but the one that he brings up is actually really astute. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and then he, he, he talks about the defense of an entire way of life, a mode of being, knowing and doing. And I was just kind of like, well, yeah, we, you know, getting back to that conversation we had before of like, well, like, is this like going to be like defending the boomer way of life? Like, like the boomer way of being, the boomer way of knowing, the boomer way of doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> see, I I have a funny feeling though that that like that's just not in the consideration here. Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has that kind of flavor of stuff where it's like, oh, here's a thing that's good, 
oh no, hold on, you misunderstood me. It's good when brown people do it, it's bad when white people do it. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, because like there definitely are boomers who are defending the boomer way of life in a very vociferous way that is like, yeah, basically means we all die. Um, and like, if that's the case, which it is, then uh, what the what the author is getting at is, well, it's it can't just be the general defense of a plurality of ways of life and the way like that i don't know ways of life are inherently good or something and should be defended um and if that's not the case then what is the book about you know it's it's like that kind of thing where um that was something we were talking about earlier and i kind of there was a point that escaped me but that like there's there's a, there's all this stuff in here that's like framed as defensive tradition defensive ways of life but then if you pull at it it's not really about that at all. Like, it's about uh, autonomy and flourishing or something. And it's like, well, it, it does, does the defense of ways of life and the defense of tradition actually lead you towards flourishing? No, it's, it's, that, it's that Federici stuff again, basically, that, like, you know, if you're concerned for the co-flourishing co of human beings in peace with each other, and you propose that you're going to do that via upholding traditions, then you point out traditions that don't do that. You know, it's like, well what was the point of the tradition? Like, is it is it a surrogate model, basically, that, like, here's this thing that's desirable, here's this other thing that seems to halfway embody it, and we're going to emphasize the second thing as a surrogate for the first. That's what I worry about here, is that tradition and that kind of communality is a stand-in for the actual desire, and it might be mistaken to kind of put the emphasis there rather than on the relationality like if you want relationality say you want that rather than saying i want tradition oh but i only want tradition that does write relationality well you know that kind of thing yeah i think it's like a martin bailey fallacy is something very like that yeah yeah like where it's like uh you know the like let's you know talk about flourishing and plurality and variety as like you know the mott position and then the bailey position is the like reject modernity return to tradition the yeah the the the, the weird quasi reactionary sort of stuff um and then once once you get called on that you can fall back to the oh well no actually i don't mean i don't mean reactionary stuff i just mean the good kind of relationality you know um for, for the listeners who are not familiar with that that analogy like a, a mott and bailey is a type of fortification that was pretty common in europe where you have a um like a castle or something like a solid uh, fortification that's then surrounded by a small town or a hamlet and then it just has wooden walls around that and the idea was that there is there's a sort of maximal uh extent of the fortification that's like includes the weak walls but then if you're actually under attack you fall back to the inner strong walls and so it's that in argumentation it's where you take up a kind of um, extreme position that you can't actually defend, and then when you're called on it, you fall back to a more defensible sort of inner version of it, but that, like, you don't acknowledge that you're actually dropping something. Um, whereas those those peasants were, were left to die, you know, in, in, in those things. Yes. Like, once, once, the, once the acceptable position is conceded, then you go back to the controversial one. Exactly right, and that's and in what we're what we're calling out here is that this like return to tradition stuff is the more controversial but much weaker claim, and that the appeals to just relationality and like the co-flourishing of human beings is like 
that's that's not contestable, that's fine, you know? But that's a much smaller thing than the thing that's actually being put forward. So there's there's a switch there's a switching back and forth that's happening here, I think. Yeah. 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 So um uh then he talks about the vexing question of the relation between design and the making of deeply unequal, insensitive, and destructive social orders seems to remain design's own wicked problem. Like wicked problems are like a sort of term of art in design where it's the you know, they're just kind of like these uh you know, very complex system sort of things, right? Like that they can't be reduced down to a simple problematic that can be analyzed and solved. So, you know, it's like, well, design design can't design itself out of the problem of design producing, uh, you know, uh, destructive and unequal orders, right? Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, like that's fair enough like if you look at it from like say you're a expert who is a designer you're not going to solve the problems of uh you know capitalist conditions of labor through that like expert domain of design that you're involved in you have to like break out of that silo in order to actually address that level of problematic um yeah even if there is like a design dimension to doing that it's not like your expertise as a designer that will get you there um and in many ways this is a kind of appeal to design people to wake up on that front and like start thinking or well it's also like pointing out that this has been a trend in design thought to like admit to more of this like actual political angle of things um but it also does read as a kind of imploring it's like hey you know maybe think about this stuff a bit more so uh i think like there are just a a handful of other little things that were interesting to me but I'll, i'll just uh yeah, I mean, it's it's so like disparate <laughs> section, like very uh, so like much. here's here's another thing that's interesting. Here's another thing that's interesting. Here's another thing that's interesting. Like it's it's like hard to really summarize because it's it's just like a, a laundry list of interesting developments in design. Um, but I think the the I mean, the core the core of this is, as we've been describing, like this Cartesian rationalistic approach to design is like through the trends that he's being, or that he is documenting here is being overcome and, uh, uh, is become like design is becoming more plural, uh, is essentially what he's arguing for. Like, look at all these ways that this is happening. So like, clearly my argument has some legs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we've we've found fault with some of it, but a lot, a lot of it is just kind of like, oh yeah, that is an interesting idea. You know, it's like a, a quote or two here and there that's that's being brought to the surface. Um, yeah, like I think when you read, like when I read the introduction, I was kind of like, eh, like I don't know. But then you like read about all these like particular instances of of things that are happening in design that he lists out, and you're kind of like, oh, like for the most part, you're like, oh yeah, these are all really interesting. Like these are sort of like 
micro disciplines or micro practices that are particular to like these this little corner of the design world that I've never heard of before, but are like super interesting. Um, so you know, it's, it's definitely worth reading uh, this uh, this section. But it's it's very difficult for us to summarize <laughs> because it just goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> it's very. It is hard to. Um to do that and it's like um i don't know do, do you get this thing with with sections like this where it's like oh here's a cool thing some people are doing here's another cool thing some people are doing but you just kind of imagine a little man going around doing speculative design or something you know it's just like that does sound like a cool thing a person would be doing doesn't it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a little homunculus in your brain is, is is like having that role or doing that thing i don't know personify things a bit too much yeah well and it's it's it reminds me a lot of like when I was doing my remedial studies when I started the PhD I'm doing now where I had to like study a bunch of stuff about transitions and futuring and design and it was like all these little trends that I hadn't heard of before that I had to get familiar with. Um, and it kind of feels like a list of things that I might have accumulated when I was doing that. Not really as a literature review, but just like uh, these are things that people ought to know about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think like if you wanted to do a here are cool things happening in design blog, this would be a good list of things to pull out and then you could do one for each day. I could definitely also imagine like the bibliography of this book being really interesting as a just a way of starting a library or whatever, you know, on this stuff. Like just get everything that's mentioned in the bibliography here and you're, you're kind of good to go. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the, like the last sort of thing that like the section, there's kind of sections to this, this section, to this, this chapter um, is just like you, you get into that uh, stuff about um, uh, the global South um, and how, you know, communities that are resisting um, these like capitalist flattening uh projects are kind of like engaging with design um so um i i feel like it's kind of mostly programmatic but like because like it's it's mostly just like making the case that like you know place matters communities matter um and you know we need to build a world that is not uh, just an infinite series of plantations and cities that that are surrounded by plantations. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the the plantation is like one of the most like nightmarish paradigms of capitalism, right? Like uh, as like a, a way of transforming nature and human life. That is a really it is a very powerful example that they use later in the book to like illustrate the kind of. Uh, what's the term? The ontological occupation um, of like that, like, hey, there was there was all this, you know, there was these ways of life for these people. And then some motherfuckers came along and erased all that and replaced it with this other way of life, you know. Um, and then the question then becomes, like, can we do the same to them? Can we displace that way of life, displace the plantations and displace capital with a similarly deliberate design project of designing a way of being? Um Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which would be, you know, that sort of like uh, natural systems theory, like, you know, uh, biodiverse and uh, 
ontologically diverse way of of, of uh, living and 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 designing na- natural spaces, uh, which is like you know very 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 seriously needed because like you know, we have like all these species of birds that are just going extinct because there's nothing anywhere except for plantations. Yeah, I mean you even see it with um, attempts to like you know plant trees and plant forests deliberately to like rest, quote restore the ecosystems but then you go around these things and they're, just, <laughs> they're all just plantations yeah. they're plantations they're perfectly square and they're dead they're completely silent and it's it's weird going amongst trees that like the trees don't even seem alive any, either and there's just nothing there there's no fucking birds there's no anything and you're just like what the fuck this it feels like a bunch of lego trees you know that have just been dropped there yeah, it it was really weird. Uh, I've probably told this story before, but just like being in the south of Malaysia, like between like Kuala Lumpur and uh, Singapore, like just driving from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur, it's like there's just nothing there but rubber trees just for like infinitely it just goes on and on and on and on and on forever and like the yeah it's like exactly like you described like they're like forests that are just like perfectly rowed out um it's, it's so weird um whenever you run into one of these like uh i guess some people might like call them natural spaces but they don't feel it's like not, it right when we natural, say natural spaces i think what we really mean is like biodiverse spaces right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's like in in those examples like where it's either it's like um a crop plantation like the rubber trees or it's just like these projects to like restore forest cover or whatever and it's like you can really see the like just the absolute perversity of like the cartesian death drive that like e- even in the attempt to restore nature it still has to conform to this cartesian grid logic that completely robs it of its actual purpose like they conclusively failed in whatever their stated objective was but it's a glow it's still a glowing success to them because it's square and and neatly arranged even if it's totally dead and it doesn't actually do what they wanted it's still a fucking success because it fits the model and it, it, it's it's quantitatively impressive impressive right like on a spreadsheet like we did this many acres of tree planting we planted a thousand and twenty four trees it's like that's a suspiciously fucking square number isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well first we planted four of them then we planted 16 then we planted 32 and then 64 yeah, and exactly and it's like god damn guy like maybe there's something wrong with your thought process if that's if that seems good you know uh, yeah um this this one we got we got more out of this first couple of pages than I thought we would. So I think this is probably going to be a three-parter in the end. Um, but yeah. Well, maybe we've, we've done the generalities. We've done this first part, so we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's quite possible it'll be a three-parter. There's there's a lot to talk about in there. Um, I guess, like again, it has the holographic property where the whole book is contained in every paragraph, but then every paragraph seems to surface one extra tantalizing nugget of, of information or... Um, a fun little concept is brought up. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think we might we might leave it at that then for this session. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I can I can recommend 
you know, uh, reading the book to anyone who's interested. But, uh, you know, you may uh, you may want to skim more than uh, read it page by page um, because, yeah, there's a lot of sort of, yeah, these like little details that are of interest. But after a while, your brain starts to sort of like tune out because it's just too much like serial information (laughs) (laughs) like staring at a fractal or something just yeah yeah it's like oh (laughs) it's like looking at like a list of goods on amazon that has no sorting to it it's just like a random accumulation of goods here's here's a motorbike here's a 16 pack of batteries here's shrek 2 on mvp Yeah, exactly. Absolutely dizzying. <laughs> <laughs> should we do um? Should we do a live outro? I think we haven't done one of those in a while. Sure, it's, why not? Feels feels good. Um, well, yeah, well uh, especially because we have something important to promote. Yes, we do. Actually, I've just remembered that. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, thanks, listeners, for li- for coming along with us. It has been wonderful as always. Um, uh, you can find us. If you want to catch up with all the rest of our stuff, you can find us on the internet at generalintellectunit.net. We're on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Um, we're on all the other shit, you know, the podcast apps. So subscribe and do all that good stuff. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, you can give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the lights on, help keep our energy levels up, and to get access to our community Discord, which is real fun. Um, nice place to hang out. Um... Yes, what's this what's this thing we're going to promote? What's happening? Uh yes, well, um our uh colleague or and also friend on the network, the Emancipation Network, uh Tom O'Brien, um has a new project uh that he's working on as a sort of result of the reading group he's been doing on the uh fundamental principles of is it communist production? I think is the name of the book. Um, fundamental principles of communist production and distribution. Yes. Yeah. And distribution. Yes. Uh, so based on sort of like what they've been discussing in that reading group, uh, he is writing a book and this book, um, is, you know, a fairly sizable project of trying to like lay down in a meaningful way, like what, would a feasible uh, system for communist economy look like um, and just kind of like responding to the previous pr- proposals that have been done in the past. Um, so all of this is coming from, you know, this very like uh, left calm, non uh, Leninist, non-Stalinist tradition of communist economics uh, and I think is very much in line with what we've been doing on GIU. Um, And I think that uh, there's a crowdfunding uh, kind of dimension to this to help uh, the Tom uh, like write the book um, and get it published. Uh, So... Now let's see. Where's the um, where's the 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 web page for this that he's he's come up with? Does does from Alpha to Omega even have like a fucking website? No, he's he's made one web he's made a website for this specifically. 
Ah, uh, yes. Uh, okay, I think I found it. Oh, maybe it's on the the announcement episode of From Alpha to Omega. Oh, hold on. I got it, yeah. So the website is theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com. It'll be in the show notes, too. Um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, if you if you go there, it has, like, a pitch um, for what the book is about. Uh, and it's also about uh, – it also allows you to make donations. Uh, so these are not uh, subscriptions like we have to GIU or you can do, like, to um, – uh, Tom's podcast from Alpha to Omega. Uh, this is just like a one-time donation. You can make over uh, Stripe or PayPal. Um, and apparently PayPal is preferable because the, tr- the fees are lower. Uh, so um, yeah, you will get a... Uh, if you uh, donate to help the book, then um, you will get a personalized signed copy of the book um and uh you will also get updates on the book progress and um you may get some thanks for being a patron of the book uh yeah so uh this i think is quite an important uh contribution to this debate because like really there hasn't been a lot of books written in this genre in quite a while like i feel like since maybe like the 90s <laughs> we haven't really had like a, a a significant like text written in the in this uh in this conversation um and uh i think you know coming out of that reading group uh it's going to be a really interesting read so uh yeah i would definitely recommend going and supporting the classless society in motion yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's looking to be a very exciting project. Um, it's also they have a really good font on that website. What is it? IBM Plex Mono. I love that font. That is very good. That's a fabulous font. Um, big fan of that one. And you, I recognized it. Um, yeah, <laughs> check out the good fonts. Um, and I should also mention. I should just mention as well that Tob does have a co-author, just not somebody that I'm personally well acquainted with. Uh, uh, name is uh, Donald Costello, and has been a participant in the um, uh, in the reading group uh, over there. That's a that's a fun series. Definitely go check out that podcast as well. Um, are, are are we left comps? Is, is Emancipation a left com network? Should we get into Bordiga? Not exactly. <laughs> if you follow if you follow the like doctrinaire definition of what a left com is, I don't think we are exactly that. Uh, but uh, did, did we have sympathies there. I mean, it kind of sure. fits. You know? Yeah, it it's, kind of fits. Weirdly, <laughs> it's weirdly the closest thing you could pr- plausibly come up with, I guess. Um, yeah, um, that's good fun. Oh, yeah, also check out the rest of the Emancipation Network. Um, uh, the website is emancipation.network. Um, yeah, good folks. All fabulous shows. Um, we, we need to get some of, the, some of them back on again soon uh, for more, more reading. Um, yeah, anything else? Uh, I think that's the main announcement. Um, if you want, uh, actually, if you want a, like a full rundown on the, the whole like, uh, 
conception and and the concept of it, Tom did a um, announcement uh, episode on his podcast uh, from Alpha to Omega that I thought was just going to be like, hey, we're doing a book. But no, it's actually like quite a detailed it's quite a detailed discussion of what the concept is. And it's really interesting. So I I would recommend going and checking that out um, as well as contributing to the campaign. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And like if you like that stuff, take a swing at that book that they're kind of reading for that, like the um, fundamental principles. It's really readable and uh, has been republished recently, uh, retranslated. So that's good stuff. Um, that's, a, that's a really good read. Um, yeah, fun. Um, also, I guess like um, listeners have probably noticed we're a bit slower on releases at the moment uh, or whatever. I guess it's um, continuation of our I guess previous thing that like we're focusing on quality rather than quantity um and we're 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 sleepy bitches these days so <laughs> it's uh real hard to keep the eyelids open <laughs> yeah i think it's uh i think it's it's a matter of uh uh this general fatigue and malaise that i've seen from pretty much everybody i know coming out of a, yet another lockdown um uh it, it's it's quite pervasive. I feel like everyone's, I think you said everyone's running on 5% battery. That's, that's pretty much what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really weird. And I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with that, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess just to reassure listeners, like the project's not going away. We're going to keep plugging away at this. Um, but we'll, um, we're going, going for quality rather than quantity and, uh, speed is not really a consideration of ours at the moment. So, um, we're going to keep it going. Um, so there's plenty of fun things to read and talk about. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, uh, I, I feel like the list of things for us to cover remains extremely long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks again, listeners. And we'll catch you again next time for our part two of this discussion. Bye-bye.